When humorist Dave Barry was a college student, he landed an internship at a magazine in Washington, D.C. He says that in college, your standing in your community was based on whether you were a good guy and willing to let a friend borrow your car, so he wasn't prepared for the great Washington totem pole of status. Barry writes, way up at the top of the pole is the president, way down at the bottom below mildew, is the public. And in between is an extremely complex hierarchy of government officials, journalists, lobbyists, lawyers, and other power players holding thousands of minutely graduated status rankings differentiated by extremely subtle nuances that only Washingtonians are capable of grasping. For example, Washingtonians know whether a person whose title is Principal Assistant Deputy Undersecretary is more or less important than a person whose title is Associate Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary. Washington parties, says Barry's, were serious affairs at which everybody made an obvious effort to figure out where everybody else fit on the totem pole and then spent the rest of the evening sucking up to whoever was higher up. Barry hated this in part because interns rank almost as low as members of the public. Dave Barry eventually figured out that not everyone in Washington is status-obsessed, but his experience is an example of what happens when people are way too concerned about how important they are. Jesus sees this attitude creeping into his little group of disciples when the brothers, James and John, ask for special treatment. Interpreters disagree about what motivates them. Could James and John be so clueless about who Jesus is that they're imagining a triumphant, regal scene with themselves sitting in positions of honor and power at King Jesus' right or left? Or is it that Jesus has just told them for the third time what lies ahead of them in Jerusalem, suffering, and death. And so the disciples are naturally starting to wonder about their own futures. Either way, their request is grounded in their trust for Jesus. They assume that he will be glorified in one way or another. They also love him. They want to stay close to him. So maybe that's why Jesus doesn't reprimand them. Instead, he tells them that they don't know what they're talking about. He gently brings them back to the hardships that will come first through the images of the cup of suffering and the baptism of death. These are what they can expect before glory. Are they able to drink from that cup, to be baptized with that baptism? Way too quickly, the brothers insist, you bet we are. And Jesus accepts this, responding that they will indeed share his cup and his baptism, they too will know suffering, persecution, perhaps even death, because of their loyalty to him. But he says that to sit at his right or left hand is not his to give. By now, the other ten disciples have caught up, and they aren't pleased to learn that James and John are jockeying for position. Apparently, all the disciples are stuck in the totem pole way of looking at power 
who's on top, who gets the best seat, who gets to be principal assistant deputy undersecretary, and who gets to be assistant principal deputy assistant secretary. <laughs> they seem to think that the totem pole system works just fine. It's just that the wrong people are on top right now. They're looking forward to the time when they, alongside Jesus, are the ones on the top. Meanwhile, Jesus is upending the seating arrangement. He says that what the world actually calls greatness is not great at all. He refers to the Gentiles. He's talking about the Romans who occupy Judea. These Gentiles lord it over each other. They think tyrants are great. Then Jesus gives the disciples a new recipe for greatness. Whoever wishes to become great among you must first be your student, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. To be great is to serve. You know, I think that many of us struggle with Jesus' words as much as the disciples did when they first heard this, even if we've heard it many times. Sure, we know serving is good, but if you wish to be great, you must be a servant. Greatness equals serving. It isn't just Washington that's obsessed with the totem pole system, and it isn't just the disciples who jockey for position. In order to grasp why serving actually is great and does lead to greatness, not just in some sort of irrational, Jesus-always-loves-a-paradox sort of a way, we need to remember that Jesus has been leading his disciples toward transformation, and along with them, us, and the whole world. Jesus knows that what's behind the totem pole scenario is fear. Fear that we won't have enough, be loved enough, that we are not enough. He knows that what's behind it is a way of looking at the world that says that there are only so many pieces of the pie, and so I'd better get my piece, that there are winners and losers in the world, and I'll do whatever I can to be a winner. It's a way of looking at the world that has caused much, if not all, of the suffering and disconnection and violence that humanity brings upon itself. And it's this way of looking at the world that Jesus turns on its head when he heals people, forgives sins, touches the untouchable, includes the outcast, and breaks the rules that drag people down and disconnect them from community. From the beginning of Mark's gospel, he's insisted that God is near, God is here, and claims us as God's beloveds. Jesus has modeled the compassionate life that our close-by God wants the whole world to live. This, he says, is what God's kingdom looks like. Jesus proclaims that this is good news, not just for some, not just for those at the bottom of the totem pole, but for all. Just before our verses this morning, he welcomes children when others try to shoo them away. 
demonstrating that no one is too powerless or too vulnerable to be worthy of God's expansive love. Now, Jesus is showing the disciples that serving is the way out of the fear of not enough, and even the way out of not enough itself. Serving changes us, and serving changes the world. Serving helps others, and it helps us. It heals others, and it heals us. It connects us with others, and it connects us with ourselves and with God. Serving is how God transforms the world and how God transforms us. Jesus' lesson here is summed up by Richard Rohr this way. Unless and until you give your life away to others, you do not seem to have it yourself at any deep level. Unless and until you give your life away to others, you do not seem to have it yourself at any deep level. Good parents always learn this. People in recovery in 12-step groups learn this. The 12th step, the 12th step of the 12 steps, is about serving others who need help with recovery. And the universal experience is that it turns out to be life-changing and healing for the person who is doing, doing the serving as well. A woman in recovery writes, at first I didn't understand when my sponsor said, you've got to give it away to keep it. But after being around the program for a while, I began to feel a lot of gratitude. I wanted to give back some of what was given to me so freely. I began to be a temporary sponsor for newcomers It was then that I realized how this helping others business revitalized and strengthened my own personal recovery. I needed to help others as much for my own recovery as for theirs. Unless and until you give your life away to others, you do not seem to have it to yourself at any deep level. The predictable trio of money, power, and fame cannot give you yourself or protect you from the fear of not enough. The drive to be at the top of the totem pole cannot give you yourself. And in fact, it feeds the fear of not enough. So the greatness promised by the totem pole is illusory. It is a trap that leads to more fear and more disconnection from self and others and God. Unless and until you give your life away to others, you do not seem to have it yourself at any deep level. That is greatness. In a very real, non-paradoxical way, that is greatness. Author Isabel Allende tells the story of her daughter's death in one of the This I Believe essays. She writes, I have lived with passion and in a hurry, trying to accomplish too many things. I never had time to think about my beliefs until my 28-year-old daughter Paula fell ill. She was in a coma for a year, and I took care of her at home until she died in my arms in December of 1992. 
During that year of agony and the following year of my grieving, everything stopped for me. There was nothing to do, just cry and remember. However, that year also gave an opportunity to reflect upon my journey and the principles that hold me together. Paralyzed and silent in her bed, my daughter Paula taught me a lesson that is now my mantra. You only have what you give. It's by spending yourself that you become rich. Paula led a life of service. She worked as a volunteer helping women and children eight hours a day, six days a week. She never had any money, but she needed very little. When she died, she had nothing, and she needed nothing. During her illness, I had to let go of everything, her laughter, her voice, her grace, her beauty, her company, and finally her spirit. When she died, I thought I had lost everything, but then I realized I still had the love I had given her. I don't even know if she was able to receive that love. She could not respond in any way. Her eyes were somber pools that reflected no light. But I was full of love, and that love keeps growing and multiplying and giving fruit. The pain of losing my child was a cleansing experience. I had to throw overboard all excess baggage and keep only what is essential. Because of Paula, I don't cling to anything anymore. Now I like to give much more than to receive, I am happier when I love than when I am loved. I adore my husband, my son, my grandchildren, my mother, my dog, and frankly, I don't know if they even like me. (laughs) But who cares? Loving them is my joy. Give, give, give. What is the point of having experience, knowledge, or talent if I don't give it away? Of having stories if I don't tell them to others? of having wealth if I don't share it. I don't intend to be cremated with any of it. It is in giving that I connect with others, with the world and with the divine. It is in giving that I feel the spirit of my daughter inside me like a soft presence. Many of you know this. Many of you have experienced this here at First Presbyterian Church. Together we serve is our congregation's motto, for a good reason. Certainly, church is not the only place we serve. Service is possible in every aspect of life, and in fact, in every single encounter. But perhaps church is a place that offers a greater awareness of the joy, the healing, the connection that come to you when you serve. You've experienced this as church officers, as godly play teachers, choir members, church mice, on rebuilding trips to the Gulf Coast or olive tree planting trips in Palestine, or at our winter homeless shelter, which starts up again in a couple of weeks. There is nothing selfish or inappropriate about acknowledging that we may be getting as much or more out of serving than the 40 or 50 men who make Duncan Hall their home for the night get from being served. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what makes serving great. 
The challenge we might face in church is letting not enough thinking creep into even our serving. We can start thinking that in order to be better Christians or earn approval or God's love or assuage our guilt, we have to serve more, serve all the time, take on every task, and then we still feel guilty because the reality is we can never do enough in a world with endless need. The result is guilt-ridden and joyless service, service that is a burden rather than a joy. Serving is not always fun, and it certainly isn't always easy, and it almost always involves some form of sacrifice, even if it's just sacrificing a bit of ego. That's why it's healing. Still, it's good to remember, as someone put it, that awareness of a need does not necessarily constitute a call to serve. But God is calling you to some need, to some need which you may or may not be aware of this morning. Look for it, find it, answer that call. Your life will be richer, more meaningful, more joy-filled, and a small corner of the world will be healed. It's a brilliant plan, but then it is God's plan, after all. It is God's plan for greatness. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.